even though these laws don't have specific provisions targeting women who end their own pregnancies, we know that this will unfortunately provide fodder for prosecutors who are intent on finding a way to punish people for ending a pregnancy. And then they also, just on a practical level, are creating fear and apprehension right now. You're seeing sort of that extended reasoning of, you know, you have a living human being. We are going to consider this a person by virtue of the fact that it is a living human being. And, and we can't really distinguish between different stages of development in the life of a human being. Um, so we've extended that all the way to the very beginning. And at that moment of conception, Alabama has taken the position that this is a human being with an inherent right to life and the state is going to protect that interest. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on Legal Talk Network. I'm Lawrence Coletti, executive producer and frequent contributor to our blog. I'm standing in for our regular host, Craig Williams. we got quite a show going on today, but uh, before we get into the topic, I want to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, C-L-I-O.com. This year and in recent months, there's been a rise in abortion legislation within the United States. Notably, Alabama, Georgia have passed pro-life laws like the Heartbeat Bill, while conversely, New York and Vermont have passed pro-choice legislation like the Reproductive Health Act. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will discuss these recent trends in abortion legislation, the potential involvement of the Supreme Court, and the impact this brewing conflict will have on both Americans and the law. Here to discuss today's topic is Amy Swear, Senior Legal Policy Analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And also joining us is Farah Diaz-Teo, Reproductive Rights Attorney and Senior Counsel for If, When, How, where she develops and executes litigation strategy and assists state and grassroots partners in reaching their policy goals. Welcome to the show, Farah. Hi, glad to be here. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us, ladies. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And so anyway, I, I wanted to uh, you know, just start off with covering some of the roadmap of the issues that we're going to discuss today and ask you a couple of questions. The goal being with these first couple of questions is to give the audience a reference point on where you're coming from. So some of the factors we're going to cover today, we're going to cover the rights of the unborn versus reproductive rights of women. We're going to talk about health and well-being of the mother, viability of the the unborn criminal and civil liability related to abortion legislation. And then, of course, we'll be touching on Supreme Court cases versus new state legislation. So let me open up with just a couple of real simple questions that give us that reference point to start with. So my first question, are you pro-choice or pro-life? Let's start with Amy. 
Uh, well, certainly coming from the Heritage Foundation, uh, we represent a very pro-life position. That's not to say that the government should be involved in all of the choices that individuals make on a daily basis, but it is to say that the government has a, a very legitimate and compelling interest in protecting human life. Uh, in fact, that is one of the most legitimate purposes of government, and that at the end of the day, it is this compelling interest that ought to be protected uh, above and beyond any sort of privacy interest, whether it's with regard to an unborn child or whether it's with regard to a fully grown adult human being, um, that the life of that human being uh, is inherently valuable and should be protected as a government interest. All right. And uh, same question, pro-life, pro-choice, Vera. So I would say that if one how is in support of reproductive justice, um, which includes what most people would think of as the pro-choice position, but really what it means is that uh, everybody has the rights and resources that they need to determine if, when, and how to create and sustain families. So what that means is that we envision a system in which everyone can self-determine their reproductive lives free from discrimination, coercion, or violence, and that people who end a pregnancy are able to do so safely, with dignity, and without fear of punishment. All right. So I have a follow-up question, kind of dialing in the perspectives here. So obviously, we're on different sides of the debate, and I want to give both sides equal amount of dignity as we discuss it. And so viability. And so I'm asking a viability question, and I'm coming to it from the framework of when do we as a people, we as a state or governing bodies, need to step in and protect new life. And so, you know, obviously kind of the classic examples from the pro-life side, you know, at the moment of conception, you want to apply those rights to protect a new life. Conversely, on the pro-choice side, you know, it's after birth. And so I just want to get kind of the exact win from the position you're taking. And let me, let's turn once more first to Amy. Sure. So to kind of answer at least what I understood your question to be, uh, is that for my pro-life position, there doesn't seem to be a, a rational distinction um, between different stages of development of human life. That if the interest is in protecting life, the, the only determination that matters is when that life begins. Um, so in essence, when is a human being created. This use of the standard of viability, I think even the court itself at, at times has recognized is a bit arbitrary, that it's a standard that, that doesn't really have a rational relationship to human development as much as it does to technological development, that the age of viability can increase or decrease simply depending on, on medical trajectories uh, and not necessarily on development itself. And that, again, ultimately, if we're talking about the interest being in protecting human life, it comes back down to when is a living human being, you know, not a person who's protected and can have that, that life interest protected. Um, and, and viability doesn't really seem to have a rational relationship to that distinction. All right. And Farrah, same question. Just kind of want to get where you're coming from on the viability issue. Yeah. So I would say that I agree with Amy in that viability is not particularly a useful distinction. When we're asking the question of when the state has a responsibility to protect life, from a human rights perspective, certainly the state uh, always has a responsibility to protect life and to promote health. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily translate into um, the state prohibiting abortion. And what we see, unfortunately, is in the name of protecting life, states enacting policies that have ramifications for pregnant women that go far beyond the implications for abortion. Uh, so when a state decides to control the actions 
of pregnant women in the name of fetuses, then that really implies all of the decisions they make about their pregnancies, not just the decision of whether or not to carry the pregnancy to term, but even how they give birth uh, and things that they decide to do or not do during pregnancy. So really the best way that the state can protect life and ensure the well-being of newborns and infants and mothers is by providing supportive services and ensuring that everybody has the the healthy environment and the resources they need to be able to have a healthy pregnancy and the best start at life. As we discussed, our show today is going to cover some of the new state legislation that's been coming out in 2019. And it seems that the states are diverging apart. And so they're they're coming at this from two different perspectives. And that gap between them seems to be widening. But before we get into the specifics of which state is doing what, what I want to do is just establish a foundation from the Supreme Court. And so in my research in preparing for the show, you know, two main cases seem to jump out at me and both were, were 1973 cases. Of course, the first one would be Roe v. Wade, which uh, you know is popularly recognized as the case that gives Americans the right to abortion. And the second one is Doe v. Bolton. And so Doe v. Bolton helps in terms of, uh, of abortion right, helps kind of define what is meant by health and well-being. And the states utilize that meaning to apply some of their abortion laws. And so what I wanted to do was, and I think I'm going to turn the microphone to Fair on this one, I want to get a little bit of uh, just kind of a tour of Roe v. Wade, a little bit of the facts, and then just kind of, if you can, leave with us where that right to abortion came in. And then obviously, Amy, I will uh, open it up for your reaction as well. So Fair, if you could just tell us a little bit about Roe v. Wade 1973. Sure. Well, so a lot of folks may be familiar with the, with the story of Roe v. Wade. Um, there were uh, abortion prohibitions in Texas um, that really provided very few avenues for women who needed to end a pregnancy to be able to do so. Um, and so the law was challenged on a number of constitutional grounds. And eventually where we ended up uh, is that the the right to abortion or the jurisprudence as we know it now is really seated in the 14th Amendment and in sort of the penumbral rights of privacy. But one of the most important things about Roe that most folks may not be aware of is that one of the questions that the court uh, answered in it was was the question of whether a fetus becomes a person. And what the court did was it looked at the landscape of the United States, at the abortion laws in place at the time, at the history of abortion laws, which historically had actually been rather permissive, and said that taking all those things into consideration, a fetus should not be considered a person for the purposes of the 14th Amendment, because then the court would really be in this untenable position of having to weigh the rights of one person against the rights of another. And I think that 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 part in particular was very prescient because it importantly recognized that pregnant women should be able to retain all of the same constitutional rights to bodily autonomy, you know, essentially all of their dignitary rights throughout the entire course of their pregnancy. So what we've been seeing in the most recent legislation is an attack really on that central premise that a fetus isn't considered a person under the Constitution. And that has sweeping ramifications that go beyond abortion and really affect everything that a pregnant woman does or doesn't do. And so, uh, Amy, I know that challengers to the validity of Roe v. Wade giving abortion rights, uh, you know, attack it on constitutional grounds. And so what is your assessment of the value of Roe v. Wade in terms of creating a right to abortion? 
Well, I'd actually agree with Farah in the sense of, of what Roe did. And one of the problems that the court recognized there, uh, which is that if you recognize an unborn human being as a person, you then have a problem with any sort of law or, or, or allowance of another human being to then take the life of that person you know, outside of any sort of due process or, or anything of that nature. But what I will point out is that part of the reason that the court decides that you know, under the 14th Amendment, this is not a person, is that it says we're not going to delve into this question of when life begins. But there's also in there what some people have referred to as the collapse clause of, of Roe v. Wade, uh, in which it essentially says, but if we were ever to determine that this is actually a living human being, that this is when life begins, well, then we have to address this problem. Uh, unfortunately, that the court has not since addressed that problem. Uh, and it actually point to to Casey, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, as really the case where the, the court recognized, okay, we need to find sort of another avenue of dealing with this issue. And they kind of changed it from this question of when life begins and, and personhood uh, and, and the personhood of the, of the fetus to really looking at it more from a question of, well, we've decided this based on precedent and we're just not going to touch that question again. So I, I'd, I'd kind of point to that distinction really as something that is important when we start talking about both other cases uh, and legal avenues outside of abortion where states have protected the, the rights and interests of the unborn child in a rather personhood-oriented way, um, but then also as being important when we start talking about some of these uh, abortion prohibitions and earlier restraints on abortion in these new statutes that have come up in the last year or so, um, as some of the underlying motivations for that are states and legislatures saying, well, based on all of these scientific uh, changes and, and insights that we we've had since the 1970s and 1980s, um, you know, we're going to take on this question of, of when does life begin? Because if this is a living human being, then it's kind of hard to say, well, we have a living human being who's not also a person. Okay. And so before we get into some of the state aspect, you know, the new regulations, the new laws that, that are coming into place here, I want to talk about Doe v. Bolton because a lot of what the state utilizes to provide meaning to some of its legislation comes from there. And so, Amy, let me just turn right back to you on that one. Can you tell us a little bit about Doe v. Bolton, 1973, and what aspects it adds to the legislative bodies that be in the different states regarding abortion? Sure. So Dovey Bolton uh, came on the heels of Roe v. Wade. It, in many respects, upheld Roe v. Wade. Uh, the court reiterated that there is a protected right to privacy, um, which applies you know, not just to, to abortion, but to all sorts of things like marriage and procreation. But the main part of this that, that I think you're getting at is the part of the Dovey Bolton opinion that focused on abortion after viability being allowed uh, and constitutionally protected if necessary to protect the health of the mother. Uh, and the court kind of gives this broad definition of, of health, where if in the professional opinion of the, the doctor, this is a medical judgment that can be exercised in light of a bunch of different factors. So not just physical, but emotional, psychological, familial. I believe the woman's age was included in there, um, that all of these things are, are sort of factors to be taken into account when we're talking about the health of the mother in terms of abortion after viability. And so states have kind of used that is really the, these broad factors for determining when abortion is acceptable in terms of viability uh, after viability. Um, but this is something that, that federal courts have also struggled with back and forth, um, that there's not a very clear definition of you know, what it means in terms of 
what is encompassed in the health of the mother. Um, and, and so you've seen some states kind of take it upon themselves, such as with New York and their recently enacted legislation, where again, you, you're just seeing this broad package of factors that are involved in that. But then you're also seeing other states, again, with some of this more restrictive legislation, where it's really narrowing it down to cases of where the mother's physical health and safety is impacted. Um, and so, again, this has been something that has not really been narrowed down within the federal courts um, since that sort of broad factor definition. And Fair, do you agree with that assessment? Um, overall, I would agree with that assessment. Um, you know, I think the thing that I would add to it is that it really underscores the importance of um, looking at the individual circumstances of the person who's seeking the abortion. And that's something that you know, that we see here in New York and in elsewhere, it, people who are making decisions about abortion later in pregnancy, you know, there are a lot of factors that they are taking into account. So, you know, that may be um, a lack of viability on the part of the fetus or potential health concerns on the part of the pregnant woman. And so that's why it's important that there be avenues for people to be able to seek abortions. I mean, certainly it's not a decision um, that anybody takes lightly, especially later in pregnancy. So ensuring that they're able to do so is critical to women's health. All right, before we move on to our next segment and continue our conversation, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10. That's L2L, the number 10. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and we are joined by Amy Swear, Senior Legal Policy Analyst in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and Reproductive Rights Attorney Farah Diaz-Teo, Senior Counsel for If, When, How. And uh, we're continuing our discussion about abortion legislation, more so from the state's perspective. And in uh, part one, the first segment, we, we got into the foundation. We talked a little bit about Roe v. Wade, 1973, and V. Bolton, 1973, is establishing the the right to abortion, but also provided more so from the perspective of Doe, some meaning to some of the legislation that was going to come later. So ladies, I'd like to transition into what's been going on here in 2019. And I I agonized over this, uh, how to put this together uh, in a way that makes sense. And I think chronology is important in this case to explain it. So what I want to do is open up with New York's Reproductive Health Act, which was signed uh, into law by Governor Cuomo back in January 2019. And so what I'd like to do, and I think I'm going to turn to Farah for this. Can you give us a tour of what's included in that new law and then walk us through some of the features? Sure. So to understand the Reproductive Health Act, first you have to understand New York's abortion law and its history. So New York was one of the first states to liberalize its abortion law prior to Roe v. Wade, actually in um, 1970, uh, and permitted abortion at a time when certainly not all states did. And when that law was written, it was considered very progressive. But then I guess the law just stayed there, became um, calcified, and was not 
uh, it was not updated since then. So there were aspects of the law that were no longer consistent with Supreme Court jurisprudence. For example, it didn't have an appropriate exception for the health of the pregnant woman. So what that meant was that people who were seeking abortions often would have to leave New York, uh, would have to go to Maryland or Colorado to get later abortion care. And uh, hearing the stories of uh, those families and, and what they had to go through to get the care that they needed was something that was, I think, not only was profoundly moving to me, but was profoundly moving to the legislature. But really the most important part of the change um, to New York's law is something that's that's within the focus of the strategic initiatives that If One How works on. Um, it repealed the criminal laws regarding abortion. So the way that uh, legal abortion was situated within New York law at that time. It was essentially a uh, an exception to the crime of criminal abortion in the first and second degree. And it's really interesting to think about a state with, with fairly good abortion access like New York criminalizing abortion. Um, but worse than that, actually, New York was one of only, at the time, seven states that still retained a law that criminalized people for ending their own pregnancies. And that's really where our focus is um, at If One How is ensuring that people who and their pregnancies can do so without fear of being arrested. And that law, even though it was an antiquated law that didn't even really have any um, any legislative record supporting why the legislature in the 1850s had opted to criminalize people who ended their own pregnancies, was still being used. Even as recently as 2011, a young woman in Washington Heights was arrested for allegedly drinking a tea to end her own pregnancy. So from our perspective, the most important changes were the repeal of the criminal abortion law, which then meant that um, physicians who need to provide later abortion care to their patients didn't have to worry about being criminalized, but then also the repeal of those self-abortion laws, making sure that people who end their pregnancies don't have to fear arrest. And so thankfully, not only did New York repeal its criminal abortion law, Nevada also recently did so as well. So, you know, we're seeing um, a trend in states removing these laws that can be used to criminalize people for ending their own pregnancies. So, Amy, my understanding of what I read about New York's new law here is that it opened up the third trimester abortion options under certain conditions. Now, critics of the law, you know, claim that the restrictions are not meaningful, meaning that basically third trimester abortions are allowed without restrictions, even though it's claimed not to be the case. And, uh, you know, from the perspective of the Heritage Foundation, where do you guys weigh in on that? Right. So the controversy that comes up with uh, this opening up of third trimester uh, abortions, especially in the context of the New York law, uh, is that it legalized abortion either in the absence of fetal viability or at any time during the pregnancy when, quote, necessary to protect a woman's life or health. The problem is that it really left those factors of a woman's life or health undefined. Um, now, I, I think generally speaking, many people would agree that, and I think even most people would agree, that when a mother's life is 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 literally at, at risk and it's it's a, a question of you know whether that the mother is going to live or die that th- this is you know a, a very tragic decision it, it is a hard decision an unenviable decision that we should have uh, very much compassion and empathy for um, and that that is not inherently wrong in that context of you know choosing between the mother's life and the child's life the problem is that how again back to this question of Dovey Bolton how are we defining health 
because technically this could be defined broadly to to include just things like, well, if I have this child, uh, I'll be depressed. Um, You know, it it will detrimentally impact my emotional well-being to a certain extent. Uh, And that really all it would take is a doctor to to make that determination of, yeah, well, even though that this fetus is is viable and in any other capacity is protected under, you know, state murder statutes, um, uh, protected uh, under tort, criminal or property law or or anything of that sort. Well, in this context, this viable fetus can be destroyed, terminated, this human being can, this life can be ended, you know, for something as kind of subjective as as a woman's uh, mental health. Uh, And that's not to say that women's mental health is is not important. It certainly is. But it's, again, just that that weighing of the factors of this is a human life that we're talking about. Uh, And so it seemed to be opening the door to allowing women to end the life of their child, uh, their unborn child, based on rather subjective and and maybe wishy-washy factors that don't rise to what most people would think of when they say, you know, to protect a woman's life or health, that it kind of opened up that that door underneath um, for more subjective situations. And so I want to give Farah a chance to respond to that. So Farah, obviously, you know, supporters of New York's Reproductive Health Act don't see it as so flexible, wishy-washy uh, standard, which just allows abortion late term without any restrictions. So I just wanted to give you a moment to weigh in on what uh, Amy just said there. Yeah, I think the really important aspect to think about here um, is that it's a reiteration of the fact that the woman's health is always paramount. And that's something, you know, not having had that in New York's law before was really detrimental in ways, again, that, that go beyond um, women who are having abortions. So, for example, um, the fact that New York had a criminal abortion law that prohibited abortions after 24 weeks was used to criminally prosecute a woman who was in a car accident on Long Island um, and gave birth to a baby who was born alive but then died a few days later on a theory that because the state, you know, deems to protect fetuses through this abortion law, then that means that women can be criminally prosecuted for things that they do with respect to their own pregnancy. The law was also used uh, against a woman uh, in Staten Island who wanted to have a vaginal birth after cesarean, and the hospital essentially argued um, that because the state has a right to prohibit abortion past a certain time, that the hospital, a private entity, could then force a woman to undergo a cesarean surgery against her will without even seeking legal process. So, you know, the idea, reiterating in the law that women's health is paramount is important because, you know, obviously it's a message that prosecutors, that healthcare providers need to hear, that women retain their full constitutional rights throughout the entire pregnancy. And, and you know, and a big part of that is respect for their health. So before we transition out of New York's Reproductive Health Act, there was one thing that grabbed my attention in regards to what is contained within that law. And I think it's actually similar, although it applies to different areas of law for some of the other legislation, whether it's the Heartbeat Bill uh, states or Alabama's Human Life Protection Act or Vermont's new law, which I believe just came into play June 10th. But one of the things I thought was really interesting was that as part of New York's Reproductive Health Act, they repealed the act of criminalizing harm to children in the womb, meaning 
if a pregnant woman is on a subway and is assaulted, you know, God forbid, and then she ends up losing her unborn child, there is not a criminal penalty uh, associated with the loss of the unborn child. Now, of course, there would be criminal penalties for the injuries suffered by the pregnant woman, but in terms of the the loss of the unborn child, there's nothing that you can pursue in terms of New York law. And I thought that was interesting because that seems to be a linchpin issue for both sides of the abortion debate in so recognizing the loss of an unborn life triggers some other possible consequences down the road. And this transitions into these other state laws, into the civil, uh, into tax remedies. And so I wanted to kind of leave that on your doorstep before we transition over to the heartbeat bill states. And I want to talk first with Amy on that, uh, that linchpin issue. Have you noticed that as well with these differing abortion laws? No, I, absolutely. I, it's certainly that distinguishment in the law a lot of times between how some states treat the life and, and the interest of the unborn child in the abortion context versus in, in other contexts in criminal and, and civil law. There certainly is that disparity there within a, a lot of state laws, um, and it's sort of an irrational disparity. And so the way that New York dealt with that is by sort of equalizing it across the board by taking you know, those interests out of the other criminal law contexts, which in a sense, again, makes rational sense the way that other states have, have dealt with it is, is by trying to say, well, we've given rights of, of personhood, essentially, um, either through fetal homicide laws, through uh, wrongful death laws that protect unborn children, uh, a lot of times from conception, that because we've expanded those uh, we're, we're opening up again that, that conversation of when does life begin, when is, when is a living human being a person, and that the way those states have dealt with it is by then lowering the threshold in terms of uh, abortion law of when that life can be protected under abortion law. And Fair, I wanted to give you a moment to respond to that. Do you agree with that sort of linchpin nature of some of those ancillary laws that kick in uh, when it comes to uh, you know rights or consequences for harming the unborn, whether it's through taxes or through civil or through criminal? Mm, yeah. So, I mean, I would start out by saying that it's a common misconception that there is no crime that a person can be charged with for causing harm to a fetus in New York. Um, and I think the misconception really stems from a misunderstanding of what the purpose and intent of the criminal abortion law was. And when you look at the history of that law and why it was passed, it wasn't really intended to protect fetuses. It was intended to protect pregnant women from people who were, uh, you know, essentially saying that they were abortion providers, but who were providing substandard care. And that was a law that was really urged and enacted by um, the medical community, the nascent American Medical Association, to police the boundaries of what it meant to be providing an abortion. And that's why the law had baked into it the idea of a justifiable abortion or the legal abortion. So that law is never one that should have been applied to somebody who assaults a pregnant woman on the subway. And there are certainly court decisions on that saying that when the legislature says abortion, they mean an abortion. They don't mean an assault against a pregnant woman. So um, New York uh, is one of the states that retains the born alive law. And so what that means is that when people commit acts of violence against pregnant women and would cause them to lose their pregnancy or, or some sort of harm to the pregnancy, that's treated first and foremost as a crime against the 
pregnant woman, which is exactly what it is, um, and it's how the law should treat it. And what we see across states that have laws that criminalize harm to fetuses is that, unfortunately, those laws often get turned around and used against the very women who are carrying those fetuses, the, the pregnant women themselves. And that occurs not just in states that fail to account for the possibility that a prosecutor might use, misuse the law in some way, but even happen in states where there are clear exceptions that say that, if, you know, if we're going to prosecute harm to fetuses, we're going to make sure that we're not going to sweep up pregnant women in that prosecution. Um, and, you know, we know that from 1973 until the present day, there have been more than a thousand women across the country who have been prosecuted under this theory, uh, essentially, you know, perversion on Roe versus Wade, saying that if the state can control whether a person can end the pregnancy, then they can also punish a person for not carrying the pregnancy to term in the way that the state deems correct. Well, so I think that's a great place to transition into our heartbeat bill states. And so I lumped several states into this one category. Uh, not every state is going to be the same. At my count, we've got Missouri, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, and Ohio that have signed into action these laws that are commonly referred to as the heartbeat bills. And so they share a lot of similar characteristics. And I, and I want to kind of walk through that. And so, you know, the first one is, is they lay out sort of a demarking period. You know, before this, we're going to allow uh, abortion. But beyond this, uh, beyond a level of viability, and in most of these states, it's defined as a heartbeat when a heartbeat can be detected, which according to the science that I've been reading about is about eight weeks. And so at that point forward, then you cannot get an abortion unless you meet within certain exceptions. And then in addition to that demarking period that they wanted to make more clear in these states, they've added some criminal penalties to this, some civil liability, but they've also opened up some tax benefits, some tax deductions for expecting families. And so that kind of gets into that linchpin issues that we were talking about before in so recognizing with different aspects of the law, you know, a, perhaps from the pro-life perspective, adding, you know, a little bit more meaning to the unborn life in a way that becomes enforceable and perhaps something that gets more recognized. And I know that's a big wind up there, but I want to hand that over to Amy to give us a little bit of the uh, the 50,000 foot on these heartbeat bills, and then we'll get into it from there. Sure. So as you said, there are uh, four states, at least recently, that have enacted uh, fetal heartbeat bills, um, which would prohibit abortion, essentially somewhere between that six to eight week window. What's interesting about these efforts compared to previous efforts at this is that states like Louisiana have not included exceptions for rape or incest, that it's just exceptions for the life of the mother. Uh, and what's interesting about this is when you look at it from a, I hesitate to use the word tactical, but, but from a judicial philosophical standpoint, um, the reasoning seems to be, again, this reorientation of of the argument into this question of when does life begin? When is this a, a human being? And to take away that distinguishment of if this is a human being, uh, if this is a living human being who is a person, that personhood is not dependent on the means of conception, whether it's rape or incest. Uh, and that while those things are, are horrific um, and certainly crimes that should be punished, that punishment ought not fall on the unborn child. Um, it ought not uh, be taken into account for determinations of personhood. Um, and so it's actually a, a quite interesting and I think more rationally coherent conception of that argument that, that we've seen repeatedly start coming to the surface in these sort of pro-life initiatives of really focusing on 
that concept of personhood and, and when a human life is protected. So I think that's the biggest new development in some of these new initiatives. But it's also important to note that, at least as far as I'm aware, none of these laws have yet got into effect. I know several of them um, have been blocked and, and have appeals pending, though I, I think there was still one that was set to go into effect, but, but may be blocked, I believe, in Missouri. But thus far, none of these have actually gone into effect. So, Farah, I think from the pro-choice side of the equation, I would imagine that amongst the heartbeat bill states, uh, you know, the rape and incest not being accepted as allowing for abortion is particularly concerning to you. But uh, I also noticed uh, in these bills, which was very striking, that even though a medical provider, you know, would be potentially held criminally or civilly liable, women were excluded from any type of criminal or civil liability. And so I just, I know those are kind of at different ends of the spectrum there, but I wanted to get your reply based on that. So I think Amy is exactly right that the the new trend is really, um, I think, dropping the veil on the reasoning behind restrictions that are placed on abortion. I think, you know, for the past many years, a lot of the restrictions on abortion were really done, you know, ostensibly in the name of women's health. And uh, and so creating more and more onerous restrictions on the providers, abortion providers to, you know, maintain certain width of hallways and those, those type of regulations, um, but then also restrictions on women themselves in terms of, you know, having to come in over multiple days. And all of this was done you know, again, supposedly in the name of their own health. And now it's really, I think that the legislatures are abandoning that uh, as their purported reasoning and creating these laws that are, um, first of all, making abortion accessible for many women before they even know that they're pregnant. The cardiac poll activity uh, is visible often, you know, quite early in the pregnancy and before many people would even know. But, you know, what they do also is rely on criminalization. And that's really... uh, return to, you know, the pre-Roe style of legislation that, that involves imposing criminal penalties. Now, you mentioned that the, the current laws don't permit the criminalization of women who have abortions themselves. And I would say that definitely that, one, that's correct. And two, that is consistent with the trend throughout U.S. history that, in fact, it's been really the rare outlier position states that New York took criminalizing women for either submitting to an abortion that wasn't legal under the law or for ending a pregnancy themselves. But unfortunately, the fact that states haven't clearly criminalized people for ending their own pregnancies hasn't stopped there from being arrests. So, you know, within recent years, just from the year 2000 to now, we know of at least 21 people who have been arrested for ending their own pregnancy or um, for helping a loved one who did so. So um, even though these laws don't have specific provisions targeting women who end their own pregnancies, we know that this will unfortunately provide fodder for prosecutors who are intent on finding a way to punish people for ending a pregnancy. And then they also, just on a practical level, are creating fear and apprehension right now. You know, I um, am in contact with people who are working abortion fund hotlines who hear from people every day wondering whether they need to cancel their abortion appointments because uh, abortion is a crime now. And we run a legal helpline where people can reach out if they're concerned about criminalization for abortion. And again, we hear from folks every day wondering whether they could be potentially arrested for uh, for seeking an abortion, even one in a clinic. And the clinics are still open. Abortion is still legal in all 50 states. 
So for the sake of time, and we're running out of time here for this episode, I want to lump Alabama's Human Life Protection Act and contrast it with Vermont's new law. And so Alabama is probably in terms of the new law is on the furthest side you can be on the pro-life side, whereas Vermont's new law is probably on the farthest of the side of the pro-choice. And so let me start with Amy. I'm going to hand Alabama's new Human Life Protection Act to you, and maybe we could get a tour of some of its features. And then after she's done, Farrah, I want to hand Vermont's new law to you. Sure. So the the new Alabama law uh, would essentially prohibit abortion at at any stage. So uh, it it would essentially take that concept of when does life begin and and when is a living human being a person and extend that all the way to conception and say that a living human being is a person from that moment of conception. Uh, And so the only exceptions uh, for abortion in that case would be, I believe that the terminology is a serious health risk with, again, no exceptions for rape or incest. Um, uh, As we've mentioned previously, just like with uh, a number of these other states, the abortion punishment. So the punishment for abortion would be placed not on the woman seeking the abortion, um, but on the medical practitioner performing that abortion. Um, So it would make, again, performing that abortion a a felony punishable by, I believe, 10 years to life. Again, it it hasn't gone into effect yet, but you're seeing sort of that, that extended reasoning of you know, you have a living human being. We are going to consider this a person by virtue of the fact that it is a living human being. And and we can't really distinguish between different stages of development in the life of a human being. Um, So we've extended that all the way to the very beginning. And at that moment of conception, Alabama has taken the position that this is a, a human being with an inherent right to life and the state is going to protect that interest. And so, Farrah, let's contrast that with the other side of the argument there. The new Vermont law goes completely 180 direction. Let's get a tour of some of its features and components. Sure. The most important thing about Vermont's law is that it's an affirmation um, that people maintain their fundamental rights to make decisions about their own bodies and their own health care when they're pregnant throughout pregnancy. Uh, And an important feature of Vermont's law also is the statement that um, there will be no criminalization of people for ending a pregnancy or losing a pregnancy, um, experiencing a pregnancy loss. And this is really important because what we know is that lawmakers in states that are passing progressive legislation um, supporting abortion rights see what's going on in these other states that are attempting to roll back reproductive rights and are understanding that what they need to do is make sure that their states are safe places um, for the people who live within their borders. So Vermont sees what's happening in Alabama. So even though Alabama's new law has a provision that says it won't be used to criminalize women who end a pregnancy who have an abortion, we know that more than a thousand women in Alabama alone have been criminalized on the basis of the outcome of a pregnancy. Um, Women have been charged with child endangerment crimes uh, for giving birth to healthy babies who tested positive for criminalized drugs. So earlier, Amy referenced, you know, the idea of a sort of ideologically consistent or a rationally consistent way that states might treat harm to fetuses, saying that that, uh, an abortion would be tantamount to homicide. Um, And that's essentially what Alabama is trying to do. But we know that Alabama's Supreme Court wants to go a step further. So if you look back in 2013, there was a decision, State versus Hicks. It was about a child endangerment prosecution of a woman who had given birth to a healthy baby who tested positive for cocaine. And in that is really sort of the, the 
key to Alabama's entire project, right? And in that in that concurring opinion by Justice Tom Parker, he said that there should be no difference in the way that the state treats a homicide based on the subjective relationship between the killer and the victim. So what that's saying is not just we're, we want the state of Alabama to treat abortion as a homicide, we want to treat abortion as a homicide for everybody who's involved, and that potentially includes the pregnant woman. So so even though we see under the new law, women would not be criminally prosecuted with the crime of abortion, certainly based on the prosecutorial history and the history of the courts in Alabama, we can anticipate um, that women may face criminalization for ending a pregnancy in that state. So there's obviously a lot that's going to come out of this. Uh, many of the lawmakers from Alabama admit that they think that their particular law that they put into place, the Human Life Protection Act, will come under challenge by the Supreme Court. And uh, in so, they're hoping to chisel away at uh, some of the elements of Roe v. Wade. And so, obviously, we've got states diverging away from each other. Um, the rights and obligations state to state are becoming uh, quite a bit different. So what I wanted to do is my last question for each of you. What do you predict here? I know the ACLU is interested in bringing suit based on these new laws from the pro-life perspective. But uh, you know, I wonder too, if some of the more pro-choice laws are going to come under scrutiny as well. Is this a fight that the Supreme Court can stay out of? Let's turn to Amy first for her reply. Well, I think ultimately the the court is going to have to to start weighing in on some of these questions. The problem of which cases and when these cases will ultimately make their way to the court um, is really actually going to be a question decided uh, largely by the circuit courts. So right now, you know, unless we have some circuit courts who start upholding some of these uh, some of these more restrictive abortion laws, um, right now the Supreme Court can essentially say, well, the the circuit courts have have upheld precedent. You know, there's not necessarily a compelling reason for them to take some of these cases uh, unless you start seeing circuit splits. In which case, I, I think it's much more likely that the Supreme Court is going to to take on some of these issues um, to sort out those circuit splits. Right now, uh, kind of as these issues are working their way up, we we don't have those splits. But I, I think that that the, the Supreme Court is much more likely to start taking on, for example, cases like uh, actually the the case that just declined to take up, at least on the question of Indiana's law that would have prohibited abortion on the basis of the race, sex, or disability of the child. You know, I, I think more tangential things like that are, are going to be uh, sort of the, the issues that make their way up to the court first, uh, assuming that the circuit courts don't start upholding some of these uh, more restrictive abortion laws. And Farah, same question. So earlier you mentioned uh, Indiana's intent was to pass a law that would make its way up to the Supreme Court and chisel away at Roe. And I would disagree with that characterization. I think that the intent is very clearly and precisely to try to get Roe versus Wade overturned and particularly looking at that at that question of um, when personhood begins. The chipping away was a strategy for the last 20 years. It was something that the Supreme Court repudiated in Holman's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, and I think that there was a recognition that with the political shift, this was the opportunity for states like Alabama to take Roe head on. Um, the thing is, 
we've been preparing since long before this, you know, even starting back as early as 2015, as though Roe weren't there, because there are so many people in this country for whom Roe versus Wade is essentially an empty promise for low-income women, for women of color, for people who are living in rural areas where they can't get to abortion clinics, or for people who would have to cross um, immigration and border checkpoints to get to the nearest abortion clinic. Roe is effectively an empty promise. So what we see, regardless of what happens with Roe versus Wade, the real is going to be mostly at the state level. And as we see an increasing uh, hostility toward abortion rights and the people who have abortions, we foresee the possibility that more people are going to First, that more people are going to turn to self-managed abortion as a means of ending a pregnancy, um, and that more people are going to be swept into criminal prosecutions as a result of that. So that's why If When How has developed a network of lawyers in every state that's ready to help take on those cases, because it's no longer necessarily going to be you know, institutional litigation in the halls of the Supreme Court, but it may be the fight about the rights is going to be one that's happening in public defender offices in rural places um, in Alabama and Tennessee, and uh, be ready for that. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program for today. I want to thank our guests, Farah and Amy, for joining us. And uh, ladies, you know, if our listeners, they want to reach out, learn more about the topic we discussed today, how can they find you? Well, you can certainly find me on Twitter uh, at Amy Swears, at first name, last name. Or if you go to heritage.org, that's heritage.org, you can find uh, plenty of stuff, not just for myself, but from many of my colleagues um, on this issue as well. And for us, folks can go to ifwhenhow.org, but most importantly, folks can go to reprolegalhelpline.org where they can find out information about their rights um, and get in touch with an attorney if they're concerned about criminalization for ending a pregnancy. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or best yet, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at legaltalknetwork.com where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Lawrence Cluddy. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.